0: Hello and welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode 1 Ventures. Today is the last episode in Season 2. It's Episode 25, so it's been an extended and great series with lots of amazing guests from Rachel Carroll in Episode 1 all the way through to George Robson at Sequoia, which is our most listened to episode so far, and now ending with John today. We will take a look back at the series in our monthly roundup episode. And we have some exciting news ahead of series three. On the 1st of December, we are really excited to announce that we will be coming back with season three, episode one with Alex Chesterman, who is the founder of Zoopla and one of the fastest unicorns in European history, Kazoo. It's a great episode. The rest of the season is followed with other founders of unicorns and companies on high growth trajectory towards becoming unicorns. So we're really, really excited to share with you the lineup, which we will be announcing fairly soon. Back to this episode, and we're delighted to have John Coker from EcoVentures on this week. John is the founding partner at EcoVentures, which is an impact investor in the UK. John went from being an analyst at MMC Ventures to co-managing partner in an 11 year period and he led investments into unicorns such as Interactive Investor and Gusto. John has set up Ica to build a tier one commercial venture firm focused on impact and they've just launched a $95 million fund which is the largest impact focused early stage investor fund in the UK. They've made seven investments so far and John's got lots of interesting insight into the world of venture. So let's get started. Hello, welcome, John, to Riding Unicorns.
1: Great to have you on the show. Fantastic to be here. Thank you for asking me on. Not at all. So we always like to start by hearing about our guest's journey up and up until now. So grew up in Northampton
2: and then went to school in Birmingham. was incredibly narrow at school. I liked maths and science and was terrible at everything else. So took that kind of maths and science and went to Oxford to do engineering, absolutely loved my kind of university experience, met some proper lifelong friends, met my wife. But I I guess actually probably a little bit of a theme is I've never been particularly career ambitious as a kid. Like I just used to see like school as a means to, to getting by and then, you know, try and use that to try and spend as much time as I could I I loved fishing weirdly was a bit of a weird kid like that would spend the whole day on my own on the lake that was like my idea of heaven and so in that kind of followed on through university like I wasn't clear on what I wanted to do after I left university so took a year out like all my friends went to London so I was like I want to go to London that was my like how do I get to London ended up joining an investment bank in JP Morgan like fixed income trading floor selling interest rate derivatives to hedge funds so like Completely different to anything that I've ended up doing. But I suppose it, it fitted with a few different things. It was like high pressure, high stakes maths, which fitted with what I like the sport I'd, I'd enjoyed and then what I was good at at school or unique, but realized pretty quickly it wasn't like a lifelong thing for me. And two and a half years in, that was the moment where I was like, wow, I need to like work is not about getting by. It's about doing something that has like real meaning to you and, and something that you can really enjoy. And so I was really interested in the environment and a lot of the issues that we were facing there and was particularly interested in electric vehicles, weirdly back then, because they weren't that talked about. And, and around about that time, there were two electric vehicle companies that were kind of having a little bit more prevalence. One was a business called Reva, which is an Indian company that was tiny cars. And there were quite a lot of them around London. Like people, You'd see people taking their kids to school in them, but they were like mini and then Tesla had just launched the Roadster, which was like, they're taking a Lotus Elise chassis and put battery in it. And I was fascinated by both of those things and was kind of researching around them. And that's the first time I found like discovered venture capital. It didn't really exist in London. I mean, there were a few, but not very many. And I came across the investors in Tesla, particularly DFJ, and I started researching them. And then weirdly, I, I sent like Again, the kind of naivety of like not understanding venture I actually sent them an email saying, Can I invest a thousand pounds in your fund? So I got, you know, hundreds of million pound fund with institutional investors only. Uh, but that was the first time I was like, oh, Well, hang on a minute. Like, maybe that's what I want to do. It's like engineering plus, you know, I, I probably naively thought I have two and a half years of finance on my CV. I probably need, in order to get a serious job, I need to at least combine that in some way. And venture capital was that. And so left JP Morgan because I didn't, the role I was in was like, you get in at seven, you leave at six, you do not leave your desk. There was no way that I would be able to find another job while doing that. So I was like, the only way I'm going to be able to find a different job is if I actually just leave. So I left and started writing to the venture investors that existed in the UK at that time, which is yeah, 2007, not very many And, and there were no jobs, like it was, this wasn't applying for jobs. This was writing to firms trying to figure out if they, if they had any work, eventually managed to get introduced to MMC ventures and got a job there as an analyst in 2007. At the time, MMC was a tiny, it was an angel syndicate that was making kind of single digit millions under management, half a million pound investments, like once a year and a small team. And I ended up staying there 11 years. So, because a couple of people left, I became head of the investment team in 2010 and then became a partner in 2012, and then co managing partner in 2015. And so, over that time, led investments in 15 companies, I think sat on over 20 boards. It was a proper, especially early on, it was like a proper baptism of fire that just into some situations where companies were struggling and things like that, as which was fascinating. And I learned a huge amount, but really stressful.
1: Yeah, it's ne- never ideal being like, given all the companies that are about to go bust (laughs) yeah exactly exactly
2: yeah definitely we talk about kind of challenges and learnings that was like yeah there was some put-on moments then and then in 2018 decided that yeah 11 years in I had some stuff that I wanted to do in venture and especially with regards to environmental and social impact and and then also just had this, just wanted to to start a fund from scratch around a few different things. So what well, specifically environmental social impact and um thinking about understanding founders in a different way. And so left MMC in 2018 and then set up ECA like at the end of 2018 alongside Camilla Dolan and, and Andrew Richardson. And I guess that's been the journey from there. We spent the next two and a half years setting up ICA, closed our first fund about a year and a half ago now and then at a final close of our main fund in April this year is 95 million dollar fund 68 million pounds we've now made six investments just about to make seven been building the team
0: yeah and that's probably that that's the journey so far (laughs) that's awesome so John, had you done any angel investments or anything before getting involved in venture and how do you see like different paths to getting into venture. How do you see the importance of like just starting with a few small tickets and things like that to, to start kind of cutting your teeth and building your own track record? Yeah. So it's, I think it's really different now
2: to how it was then. I mean, maybe it was because of where I was, but I like, even if I think about my friendship group and, you know, very few people went and joined startups straight out of university, there wasn't like this awareness of angel investing in the same way there is now. And so back then it was different. Now, I think, I mean, even just through the crowdfunding platforms, just start to kind of look at, go through the discipline of, un, of like analyzing a company and trying to figure out whether you think it's interesting or not. I think that's important. I'm, I'm a real believer that there is no one path into venture. I think there are all, all sorts of ways in at different stages in life. I believe that you can spend your whole career in venture. And I also believe that you can join at any point through your career. I think it's more about how you approach it once you're in it, rather than where you've been before.
1: Yes, it's interesting that that whole topic of kind of getting into venture. It it seems like it's overweight investment banking, consultancy, and maybe one or two other things, but I do think that if presented with the right person, most funds will kind of, will take notice and and give them a chance. I mean, I think there's still work to do on that front. But anyway, so after a short stint in, in banking and all that, how... How did you find VC and what were kind of the, the big differences? Did you, did you notice, you know, change to how you felt life was going? Was it, did you enjoy life a lot more? You know, was it a better lifestyle, the lifestyle you were kind of looking for? Yeah, it, I, it was completely different, a lot more
2: unstructured. Like I literally came from an environment where I had to ask to go to the loo because if the phone rang, someone needed to pick it up and I didn't have a calendar because I was never anywhere other than at my desk to a place where it was, you know, it was incredibly unstructured. MMC was effectively a startup at the time, like systems and processes there were really embryonic. The team was small. And then also just the different situations we were dealing with and trying to pick them up. And I loved that. Like, I absolutely loved that. And and definitely felt like it was more suited to me to be able to pick up lots of different things. I think when I think back to that time, I think one of the biggest challenges was engaging with senior people as someone who didn't have any experience in venture and was typically a lot younger than everyone else in the room. That was both, I think, a learning experience for me, but also affected how I then managed people that we hired at MMC and now at ECO in terms of that development curve, because I definitely ended up in some meetings where I probably could have done a better job i could definitely do a better job now than i did then and so yeah i learned a lot from that but loved loved it and and definitely loved the seeing lots of different companies and like trying to get up to speed really quickly on lots of different sectors ventures that amazing combination of trying to learn how to get up to speed really quickly on a new area while also learning how to apply consistent mental frameworks across something that you've learned elsewhere and apply it to this new new area that bit was just fascinating
1: yeah, I think that is definitely that kind of pattern recognition. It's one of the most interesting things about engaging companies. I know it wasn't that long a time ago, but how how different was VC when you started? I think as a market really different.
2: And then I also think that MMC was very different when I started to where it was when I left. I mean, even to the point that when, when I started in venture, there was the BBCA foundation course and It was for PEMVC and literally everyone went on it. And that was a tiny room of people. And that was the kind of whole new intake into venture that year. And it was like three or four people. And a lot of those people are still, they're either actually founders now or still in venture. I mean, there was very little syndication on deals in the environment I was in. I think it might've been a bit different if if you were in Index or Excel. And there was a lot less content on like how to think about venture and, and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, really different. And I haven't looked at the numbers in terms of the amount of capital deployed, but it would have been in a different world to where we are today. And the valuations would obviously be very different. The type of founders that we were engaging with were very different. I like if I think about the, the profile of founders that we backed back then versus the profile of founders we're backing now, really
1: different. Can you tell us a bit more about that? How were they different? That's interesting. When I think about back then,
2: it, it was normally someone who had had like 15, 20 years experience in an industry and then was like building a company within that industry. Whereas now quite often it's someone who has no experience within an industry, but has seen an opportunity to disrupt that industry and is kind of bringing that experience around them through people who have 15 to 20 years experience in that industry. So yeah, that's probably the biggest change. And I think the other change is just speed. It's like Again, I think this is a it's a mixture of change in the market and also change in my experience. Like until you work with an entrepreneur who operates at the speed you need to operate to build a really big business, you don't actually know that everyone else is moving really slowly. And so their speed is dramatically different now and a lot a lot more exciting.
0: Yeah, that sounds like some positive changes and some also just raising of the bar as that gets me competitive to So John, what, what was your sort of first big win in the venture space and what lessons did you learn from that and how do you, does it affect how you think
2: about things, Matt? So if I was to define big win in venture, it would be lead investor at seed or series A and taking a significant ownership as in not just a, like a little bit of the round. First step. Second step is that business scales to being like a truly huge business. And I'm not sure how you define that, but let's say at least 200 million in revenue, still growing, like pushing 100% growth, flow generative. And then I think the next step is in charge of its own destiny. So that would mean IPO and like success at that IPO and sustained success, the other side of that. And And I think it's actually quite important for us as an industry to like define that because otherwise we can get really excited by companies that have succeeded because the rest of the community thinks that they're doing well versus they're actually succeeding because they are like huge industry defining businesses so i, I think I've, I've backed a number of businesses on the way to ticking a lot of those boxes and there's there's three that are now at very scaled profitable so there would be interactive investor gusto and bloomer wild and two of those are unicorns so those are probably the ones that like are closest to being like those, those are the ones that I think will go on to be like, tick the rest of the boxes of that, what I would define as success in venture. I think there's a lot of conversation about European venture and, and how we build businesses that are really like industry defining and last and then get acquired. And I think this have, that's the attitude we need to bring to it in terms of lessons from those ones. So Interactive Investor, which is an online fund management platform. And that was the second deal i led back in it was december 2010 and actually just being totally honest with you i led the deal and then i handed the representation of that on to bruce McFarlane, and uh, who's one of the founders at nmc and then he took that from there so i could take kind of credit for the kind of original conviction but all of the hard work that comes to the other side of that definitely can't take credit for but i learned a lot from that just take the credit <laughs> yeah no i know I know, but I always like, again, you probably like from that comment on the big wins, like that, I just have this like bugbear adventure that everyone is like trying to make claim. And I remember someone once, this is going to be a weird expression, but someone once said to me, I don't know if you've ever seen those, they're really old pictures and they've caught a massive fish and they're hanging it up. And then there's like a group of like 20 people around the fish and they're all in the photo smiling, like touching the fish. And someone was like, ventures like those photos. There's one person who's caught that fish and then there's loads of other people who are
1: like trying to get in the photo and it
2: drives me mad.
1: Yeah. I've heard of funds who will put on their portfolio list companies, they've had like a tiny stake in because they invested in a fund of funds, which one of their funds had a small stake in like Uber.
2: Yeah. If we really want to build an incredible European venture ecosystem, the first thing is us being like, deeply honest about track record and ourselves and what we've learned from different situations and stuff like that anyway different topic but so on that on that deal my investment thesis and what happened were completely different so i learned a lot from watching that business grow but i don't feel like i kind of looked at it and thought this is going to happen and then it happened and then the next one which is different is Gusto, which was online grocery business that we led the seed in December, 2013. And I then was involved in that business for a really long time as a, the kind of MMC rep and a non-exec director. And it was a kind of defining learning for me through that watching Timo, who's the founder, build that business and this, the way that he thought about people, the way that he made like leadership decisions, especially on people, actually the speed at which he, he executed the thesis actually when we invested was obviously not perfect but reasonably close to playing out which was like there's an opportunity to build like data-led advantage in in the grocery supply chain which changes the margin dynamics rather than it being like recipe kits are going to be everywhere or as much to do with like how do we change the the grocery model to be more efficient and that's what they're building and they have done really well and they are not like a properly big profitable business and then the Next one would be Bloom and Wild. And just on so on Gusto in, I led that deal and, and Camilla was the person that supported me on that investment, who's Camilla's the other one of the other founders at Eka. And on Bloom and Wild, it was the other way around. So Camilla led the investment and I supported her, which was 2015. And again, learn a huge amount. I I think you learn the most from the founders from watching the way that they think about building businesses, how they think about strategy, how they think about people. And again, Aaron. Abu and Wild is a very different person to Timo, but has some like some overlap and then some things they do differently, and you can kind of take bits from each of them.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. We've we've actually we had Aaron on the on the show maybe last week. It was very recent. So the the last few weeks we've been having only really unicorn founders on the show, and there is a, a common trait between all of them where they just make decisions so fast and they don't really care whether they're right or wrong. You know that's probably part of the skin is that they often get them right in those big false decisions, which is quite interesting for us to see. It's, it's really interesting how you know, you've know you been in VC a fair while now and it's the nature of VC that it just takes a really long time to work out whether you're any good at it. I mean, I think that's one of the big things around VC. But what what do you think makes a good VC? What you just said about the feedback loops at VC is really
2: true. And, and I think It takes a while to build conviction in your approach. And I think I have like increasing conviction in my approach based off like the length of feedback loops I'm starting to feel like like, this is the way that I want to do venture and not to feel like intimidated by people who do venture in a different way to me. And there are different ways of doing venture. I'm absolutely convinced by that. I've probably gone through three cycles. I've gone through a cycle where I was intimidated by people who do it the other way because I thought they might be right. I've gone through a cycle where I was like convinced other people were wrong and I was right. And now I'm in a cycle where I think I've got an approach that works. And I know that other people have got a completely different approach that also works. And I'm kind of happy with that. We're going to do different deals, and all that kind of stuff. But I think there's a core that you need. And that is to never to be directional with a founder. So influence versus direction, like ask questions rather than tell people what to do like that. Where I see VCs perform badly, it's where they they are trying to behave like operators in the VC founder relationship. And the whole thing breaks down. You take away a shed load of value. You get in the way of the founder building what they want to build. And then I suppose on the decision making, like on the way in, I think that is all just about having a view on on where you think things are going to change in the world and then trying to find great people who share that vision. But there are different ways of doing that. Some people would just say, let's not have a view on the shape of the world. Let's just find great people. Others will have like a very narrow focus on the shape of the world. And then they might say like, we believe in financial technology, these things are going to happen. So we're not going to worry too much about people. We're just going to back loads of companies in that space. There's different ways of cutting that. But I think my approach is having the overarching view on the shape of the world, and then try and find people that you think can execute it it.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's really interesting. I've thought quite a lot about the sort of different approaches to VC. The way I've started to kind of categorize is that I think there are thesis driven VCs, lots of desk work really building a picture of the, the future of the world. I think there are momentum VCs who are just trying to plug any old check into a company that's getting led by whoever, some top VC. And and I think there is also this emerging kind of set network-driven VCs who are their value to a company is that they will raise an amazing round for you next time because people will see that you're on the cap table and, and they'll make all the right introductions. And I think that's kind of another rooted to the virtuous cycle that you eventually get in vc where kind of you get into exciting deals they raise great rounds they become successes so then founders start to want to take your money because they think the same is going to happen to them and you start attracting great deal flow and i do think they're like different approaches to the same end goal but are there, is that kind of how you see it or do, do you have a slightly different view so i i probably described what you described
2: as network More like the brand. Maybe it's a separate category, but there are definitely seeing VCs who are building a personal brand in some instances, a company brand in others. But they're very, very good at it. I mean, we're all trying to build a brand, but they're that's their superpower. Like I think that works. Like I, I didn't probably wasn't so sure about that working before, and now I believe it works. And then I think there's also different approaches to the way that you think about ownership and value. So I think you can actually not worry too much about ownership of value and just drive like finding investing and, and getting into companies and, or you can focus on ownership of value. I think where you get hurt is if you get stuck in the middle somewhere. But what I've learned watching others is that I think both work. What I don't know is we're at like 13 years since the last major financial issue. So it's unclear what, whether different things are affected differently by different marketplaces, but I mean, it would be easy to say that one approach will get, or the kind of momentum play will get more negatively affected by the market, but I just don't know that. And you also need to look at it over a like 10 year stand.
1: If you're kind of taking the approach, so you're just going to try and get a few quid into tons of kind of top decile companies. You're going to try and index the top decile, you're going to put small stakes into the bit of a spray and puree. If you land some winners and you start building that virtual cycle where you start being able to attract more and more really great founders, great companies, then I think it actually reduces the need to be such an amazing stock picker because suddenly the deal flow that you're getting is probably going to be, you know, category higher. So you're going to be seeing a thousand sort of top decile founders rather than top 20% founders. And so you're going to have a better read on which of the very best out of that lot. So I I mean, I'm kind of, speaking from from the hip here but i think it's quite interesting the idea that it could actually reduce the need to be a great stock picker and and if you think about the the skill of being that good at network
2: and brand it's a genuine skill like it's something that you need to practice it's something you need to get better at it's something that you need to measure and what you were saying is true it, it should done really well mean that you're effectively backing an index but you need to make sure that you are by doing that you're in the top of the index so that works but it's very very hard to do well i think that's the bit that i've made peace with that. my skill set sits elsewhere but i really respect that skill set in a way that i i'm just amazed by what some people are able to do in that
0: in that perspective and there's probably a medium of different partners being able to do a bit of, all of it and so they, then you you kind of get the best of everything so john i wanted to ask you about something that is very rarely talked about online's vcs but is Around limited partners. I'm not asking you to name limited partners, but what are the sort of profiles of limited partners that invest with you guys? And as an impact fund, were there criteria that you ruled out some limited partners as well? So I'll answer the second question first, which is yes, there, there definitely
2: are and, and were more ruled out by not approaching. Raising a venture fund is not a world where you get lots of people banging on your door asking you to give money to your fund it works the other way around so it's more about like who you don't approach or if someone says do you want to meet this fund the fund I they know they're looking investing the you, you say no to and so for us we were quite clear on we wanted LPs that shared our view of the world from an impact perspective and also weren't doing activities that went significantly against what we were trying to do with the fund even if they might they might say okay we want to invest in impactful venture fund, but where the money's coming from is actually creating harm the other way around. And it's a really interesting debate you can kind of get go around in circles on because there are lots of different kind of elements of that. And we had, yeah, it kind of creates some, some tricky decision points. But in the end, it ended up being really clear and we were really comfortable with it. And then that kind of flows onto who our LP base are. So we have a very broad range of LPs from individuals all the way up to the British Business Bank, which is a repeat LP in, in lots of venture funds in the in the UK. And then we have foundations, we have family offices, we have corporate investors. So it's a real, a real mix. I think it's 24 entrepreneurs and in, investors in the fund. And I think 16 of them are founders that we've backed in the past. So that was one of the things that I was like most excited about in the fund. And then I guess just kind of picking up on some of the other LPs, so big society capital who are really clearly aligned with, with what we're looking to achieve. And then a great group of LPs.
0: Well, a lot, a lot of people generally in the system don't really understand what's driving these bigger rounds and these bigger numbers and what's driving the talent war and salaries going up and all these things. And it's partly due to these big institutions and people who have made money, applying more money back into early stage and things like that. And so it's just interesting to kind of reference that and help people understand what's happening in the cycle.
2: As a, as a first, so first time fund, you are out of the box of a lot of the bigger LPs, they literally don't do fund ones. But when you look at the trend of those bigger LPs investing in venture, a lot more of investing investing venture, which we saw a difference in that, even through our fundraise. And then to your point on like as an impact investor, did it matter to us? It really did matter to us. And then the interesting data point that we've obviously had post-close the funders, it really matters to entrepreneurs. We get asked it a huge amount by entrepreneurs who are investing. And I know that other GPs aren't getting asked the same question, which I'm guessing is connected to the kind of the way that we talk about what we're trying to do and the entrepreneurs that we're engaging with. My God, it would be hard to have a conversation with an entrepreneur if you had some misalignment in your LP base. Like I, I don't actually know how we would do it. So we didn't want to do it. And I'm also really glad we don't have an issue there because it would be causing us all sorts of problems.
0: Yeah, if ExxonMobil were behind the phone, <laughs> it would be, be quite a difficult conversation with some of the
1: founders. Yeah, so so John, super interesting. And it takes us kind of onto the, onto the topic of impact. And and I really wanted to get your thoughts on on why you're excited about impact investing and and you know why you think there's such a huge opportunity there. We
2: are looking for areas where there's this like dislocation of value within a supply chain and that dislocation is creating two significant issues so if you're talking about sustainability it's creating kind of waste and environmental degradation in parallel with cost and the reason that that dislocation of value exists is because information is employed properly through the supply chain and what we invest in is information technology and what information technology is all about is about kind of driving transparency and flow of data through those supply chains. And so we think there is a huge opportunity to create supply chains that are more efficient and productive. So, you know, in traditional sense of like creating value, they are bigger, maybe higher revenue, more profitable, and at the same time have a significantly different impact on the environment if we're talking about sustainability and there are some amazing I- examples of that.
1: When you talk about supply chain, are you, are you talking about logistics or is can this be like the supply chain of software providing services to, to consumers as well?
2: So I believe that there is a consumer at the end of every single supply chain. And once you've made that assumption, you can then kind of chunk it into the big industries. So and they really are loosely like where we live, how we travel, how we eat what we wear a lot of people talk about scope three right well as a consumer if you took all the people in the world and added up their scope three that would be the carbon footprint of the world or scope one and scope two and scope three but as in like that's where it all stops our behaviors and so for us like the interesting thing is how can we back businesses that are changing those big consumer supply chains and Sometimes that is going to be direct to consumer businesses, and sometimes that is going to be enabling technology into the big incumbents. I've used Tesla as an example once already, and I'm not like a Tesla mega fan, just to be clear. I just think it's a fascinating case study. You know, we were really struggling to transition. We had the technology to transition to electric vehicles to some level. We were really struggling to because the incumbents wouldn't react. And then Tesla came along and showed them what happens if they don't react so they reacted in in transition to ev tesla was the d2c play but there are now loads of b2b plays but the b2b plays wouldn't exist without a big kind of properly disruptive d2c play to show the incumbents what to do and so that's how we think about it let's back some like really ambitious disruptive d2c plays and then let's back some enabling technology for both those d2c plays and then also the incumbents and i just think there's like there is so much waste tied up in our supply chains through inefficiency that from a sustainability perspective, there is an enormous opportunity to build genuinely valuable businesses driving out that inefficiency who are also having a massively positive effect on or reducing carbon emissions, reducing water usage, land usage, and natural resource
1: usage yeah it's it's, it's super interesting and I, I think I think you guys do a great job of of kind of navigating the impact investing landscape i suppose because i think there is still some skepticism around it and there are probably people who say you can't build huge businesses doing impact that's not commercial and and whatever and i think you guys are are doing a great job of investing in companies where where you know they they don't sort of raise those questions in a way what what do you say to the people who do have these concerns around impact investing There's two different sets of concerns.
2: There's concerns that you can't make money in businesses that are having a positive impact. And then there's a concern that if you're trying to make money in businesses that are having a positive impact, you're going to reduce the amount of positive impact they can have. There's like two different arguments, two different sets. For me, capital can influence. It's easier to talk about sustainability. We also focus on health, but let's stay with sustainability. Capital is going to have a massively important part to play in a transition to an economy that is not producing carbon. And it's going to happen in probably four different ways. So there are problem sets whereby there isn't a commercial solution at all. And we are going to need to deploy capital into those problem sets in a way that does not need a return. And that is where governments and the not profit profit sector play. There are problem sets that are going to need a reduction in return. And there's a sort of layer of impact investing that focuses there. And then there are problem sets where there is clearly an opportunity to drive efficiency in money sense and efficiency in carbon sense. So there's an opportunity to reduce carbon emissions and also reduce cost or improve service. And that's where we play. And then finally, there are areas where capital needs to influence change in incumbent industries that are like heavily emitting industries to become less emitting industries. And that's more like the ESG play. And like that's the kind of message when someone someone challenges us, like you can't, I don't believe someone can say impact is not going to drive value. I also don't believe they can just, you can't just bucket it all into one group. There's like lots of different ways we need to solve this problem. Each bit of that is as important as the other. And then the next bit is that as long as everyone is taking it really seriously in the way that they apply that across the kind of capital supply chain, I guess that would be.
1: Yeah. No, hats off for you for explaining it clearly, because I think that there are a lot of people who probably still don't believe it and they need to believe it. So um, yeah, no, I think you guys do a great job of, of navigating that.
2: Yeah. I had like an early LP pitch where someone said like, it's all just a bit too tree huggy for me. That was like end of 2018. That environment totally changed by the time we were having the final close of the fund. Like there is a lot less resistance to the concept. I think finally we have mainstream acceptance that capital has a part to play in this change.
0: And John, how important was it you to kind of come at it with a blank canvas and have it running through the DNA versus maybe a fund that already exists hasn't notoriously been known for impacts in the past, but now is trying to add it as a new ingredient, how do you see like those two different models? And do you think it does need like a blank canvas and the new approach? So
2: from a kind of mainstream perspective, it both needs to happen. Everyone needs to slowly transition to this way of thinking, I believe. And I think that they will like when we started eco that stuff that we would talk about was like making impact mainstream, like we believe it's going to be mainstream. And to achieve that, we need to demonstrate that the best return adventures come to the way that we're investing and then that will help transition it to mainstream. So like if, if a fund hasn't been doing it, but wants to focus more on it, then to be honest, that's great because we need more capital focused on it. I felt that the blank canvas was important because to Hector's question, right? Like people saying, can you really drive value through this? And then the other question is like, are you really focused on impact? Our blank canvas was helpful there because we never said anything else. Like the message was consistent all the way through. And so we didn't have to kind of answer questions around that. But the transition, of course, it can't just be a transition that happens with new funds focused on impact. It kind of has to be everybody, I think.
1: So John, we always like to play the dinner party guest game with our guests. So have you got three people who you would like to to invite to a business lunch or a business dinner. I mean, we've had people who've asked their family members. We've had people who've invited people who are dead. So it can be anyone.
2: Cool. I think I said the start love sport, fascinated by what you see like high performance in sport into business. And so I have gone very sports focused. And then I think within sport, you've got like individual excellence, team excellence, and managerial excellence. And so I have gone for Pep Bardolia at the Management Excellence. Love to hear him talk a little bit more about how he manages the characters that he's managed over the years. Sia Khaleesi, the South African rugby captain at the like team captain level. I think what the South African team achieved in the World Cup back in 2019, kind of coming from a team that was written off to what they did was just extraordinary. And I'd love to hear more about that. And then Serena Williams at the Individual Excellence level. So, you know, how do you... In in a sport that is all about the obviously she plays doubles, but at the core is all about the individual. And then this, I'd love to see that seam of conversation between the three of them as to how that comes together. Yeah, those would be my
1: three. Yeah, I think I think that would be really good because we've had we've had quite a few dinners where you know the guests just coming from totally different areas, and I'm sure they're going to have interesting conversation. But it's going to be a really weird conversation. At least these people have a common thread. But no, John, it's been. Awesome having you on the show. It's been a real pleasure to chat. It's been great to hear, you know, a really compelling case for impact investing. And you know, we've all loved seeing what you and I are doing and the companies you guys are investing in. It, it's evidence that there are there are great companies out there who are who are making a real impact on the positive impact on the on the world. Yeah, I look forward to seeing how it all goes and and keeping track of those companies. I'm sure they'll bring a lot of success. So thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Thank you very much for having
2: me. I really enjoyed it.